0: Thank you. Howdy. Well, it's Pastor Mark here with our study of Ecclesiastes, calling it Meaningless Life. Today we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. And the talk is titled Flip Flops in the Snow. And uh, take you back to my college days. I uh, got accepted at colleges in California. I wanted to go to a sunny place. but the scholarship I got through God's grace and providence required that I stay in the state of Washington to obtain the financial aid. And I came from a working class family. My dad was a union drywaller, construction worker, oldest of five kids. Mom stayed home to watch us kids. I think I was the first man in my family to ever go to college. And, uh, and I kind of had to pay my own way through. My parents helped as they were able. And so the college scholarship kept me in Washington state. Um, and so headed over to Eastern Washington, to uh, Washington state university to study at the Edward R Murrow school of communications as a non-Christian at the time. And uh, the Eastern side of the mountains in Washington is uh, closer to Idaho for those of you who aren't familiar with it. And so the weather is very, very different. It rains all the time in Seattle and Eastern Washington. It's more of a desert climate and you get uh, dry hot summers and you get a lot of snow and cold in the winter and one of the things I, I noticed right away is when I, I showed up in the fall it was still hot so a lot of the guys are walking around in shorts and flip-flops and you would expect you would anticipate you would hope uh, that they would change their attire when the weather changed but they did not so the snow starts rolling in about November, December and it is freezing cold with really high winds. Um, You're kind of out in a barren plain surrounded by wheat fields. There's really nothing to slow the wind down. It starts snowing really heavy and there's snow blowing all over the place. And if you're walking around campus, you'll see some guys who are absolutely committed and determined to wear the exact same thing, no matter what the weather. So they are still rolling around in flip-flops and shorts. December, January, February. And it's amazing to me uh, that these guys didn't understand that when a season changes, so too should your wardrobe. And and the big idea I wanna share from that simple story is, life is filled with seasons. What's true seasonally is true spiritually. Uh, What happens in the physical world uh, sometimes is a, a teaching point for us to learn something about the spiritual world. And just as we have seasons in uh, creation, so God has wired, created us to live in spiritual seasons of life. And the key is to know what season you're in and then respond, act to prepare accordingly. Uh, If not, you could be working against the God-ordained rhythms in your life, which is as futile as yelling at an apple tree in the dead of winter, demanding that it produce fresh fruit immediately you've got to wait. There's a time to prepare the harvest. There is a time to reap the harvest. There is a time to prune the branches. There is a time for uh, the tree to get a break and to go dormant. Um, that, That life in God's created order has these rhythms and these routines that are woven into it. And today in Ecclesiastes 3, that's what he's talking about when he's talking about seasons. Seasons. And so in Ecclesiastes 3.1, he begins by saying, for everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven. And the big idea is you need to know what season it is and what you're supposed to be doing in this season, your activity under heaven. And if that phraseology sounds familiar, uh, there might be a good reason. Um, If you're familiar with music trivia or you're an old former hippie or like old folk music, why don't we do a little music trivia? Which U.S. song, hit song, has the oldest lyrics? Of all the number one hit songs in the history of the United States, which one has the, the oldest lyrics? Well, the answer is, um, To Everything There Is A Season, It's the name of the song, by a band called The Birds, and they recorded in 1965. And the lyrics, maybe you're familiar with this, are taken directly word for word from Ecclesiastes chapter three. And so the section we find ourselves in today has a bit of uh, musical historical trivia connected to it. And so I'll read the first eight verses to you and maybe the song will come to mind. For everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest, a time to kill, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Here's what he's saying. Things start like a school year, a relationship, a job or your life, and then things end like graduation, divorce, unemployment or death. It's not always the same. It transitions like seasons and and life is odd Some days you're the windshield, some days you're the fly. Some days it's going your way and some days it's going the other guy's way. Some days you get torn up and some days you heal up. Some days you watch your life come together. Some days you watch your life fall apart. Some days you cannot stop smiling. Some days you cannot stop weeping. Some days you cannot stop dancing. Some days you cannot stop grieving. One day the workers come and they build your house. One day the workers come and they bulldoze your house. One day your loved one walks toward you. One day your loved one walks away from you. Some days you have hope and you pursue your dreams. Some days you lose all hope and accept your nightmare. One day you bring a new thing home and then one day you throw it in the garbage. Some days you feel like you got tore up. Some days you feel like you can heal up. Some days you need to open your mouth. Some days you need to shut your mouth. Some days you love your life. Some days you hate your life. Some days, life feels like a vacation. Some days, life feels like a war. Sound familiar? Things change. Sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad. Sometimes for our joy, sometimes for our sorrow. Sometimes we understand why sometimes we have no idea why. Here's the big idea. The key is to know what season you are in. And what oftentimes we do, creatures of habit, we do whatever used to work, we do whatever worked yesterday or last season. But just because yesterday life went well, we laughed, we danced, we shut up, we avoided conflict, does not mean that that same course of action will produce the same results today. See, too often we reduce life down to how we do things based upon what has worked and not worked for us in the past. And to some degree, this can be helpful. We want to be people who learn from our experience. But without wisdom that helps us to know what season we are in, we just end up pretty much wearing flip-flops in the snow at least much of the time. Intuitively, even non-Christians seem to understand this, which is why we have rites of passage and other ways of denoting a shift from one season to the next in life. It helps people to know your whole life is changing. Things are shifting. You're going from one season to a new season. Uh, The role you were in, the responsibilities you had, they are now changing. They are now shifting. So when your mom got pregnant, they threw her a baby shower at a, get ready for you to come. And then throughout your life, I hope that the people who love you every year uh, throw you some kind of birthday party. When you're born, you get, at least if you're in the US, a birth certificate, a photo, and a social security number. These are ways that we mark seasons of life and transitions and changes. These are mileposts and road markers and rites of passage. Do you Remember the first day you started school? Probably was a big deal. I could still remember the first day of school for every one of my kids. Gosh, I'm gonna choke up. I still remember the first day I took Ashley, our oldest, she's just graduated high school. It's crazy. I still remember the first day we dropped her off at kindergarten. And how I was an emotional basket case and she was fine. As our kids went to school, I remember the first day of school for every one of our five kids. <clears throat> and the last one to go was Gideon. Um, he's like five years old. He's the, he's the youngest in the family, super happy kid. Everybody loves him. And uh, because he's the littlest, he's got more nicknames than anybody. Uh, Nick, I have no idea why. Um, I think it's because when he was like two or three, he said, that's it, I'm changing my name to Nick. Call him Guppy. I call him uh, Little Body. Um, His oldest sister calls him George. I have no idea why. He's just got a lot of nicknames. We all love this kid. He's a really wonderful kid. I still remember the day that Grace and I took him to school, first day of kindergarten. And as he walked away, he was fine. We went and sat in the car and just kind of cried and had a nervous breakdown because now all of our kids are in school. I mean, when you're a parent and you've been raising five kids, pretty much that's what you're focused on. It takes a lot of your time. And now from the time we dropped him off in the morning to the time we picked him up in the afternoon, there were no children in the hall. The house was quiet. That's why I'm home right now recording this talk on my laptop. It's quiet. The kids are in school. If the kids were home, I guarantee you would know it. But it was a change in season. Okay, our, our days now are free. They're different. Our kids are in school. It took some while to, uh, to get adjusted. And yeah, we love the kids. We miss the kids. We like having them around. On the flip side, no more strollers and diaper bags and fruit snacks and fishy crackers and change of clothes and nap times. It's just different. Life has these seasons and and there are certain days that are like a hinge on a door and, and one season closes and another season opens and things shift. Sure, you're becoming an adult, we let you drive a car, you get a driver's license. Remember the day you got your driver's license? Or we let you vote for president, at least in the US when you're 18. When you graduate from high school, we send out announcements, we host a party, there's a formal ceremony, you put on a weird hat, you walk up front and somebody who looks official hands you a piece of paper saying, that season is over. And then a new season has begun. When you graduate from college, we do it again. And then you're off into the workforce. When you get married, everybody gets dressed up, shows up to celebrate your entrance into a new season of life, no longer single, now married, new season, things change, different activities under heaven. When you retire from work, someone buys you a cake and your coworkers thank you. It's important, and I would encourage you to think about this even as a parent or a grandparent or a friend or a spouse. Sacred moments. Moments where a transition is happening from one season to the next. How to capture those, how to celebrate those, how to commemorate those. I'm the dad who takes a billion photos. I got so many photos. My kids just laugh. I'm not a good photographer, but what I lack in Good photography, I just make up in sheer volume. I wanna capture as much as I can and then look back. Have you ever done that as a parent? Gosh, it's just a its a joyful heartbreak. Look back at the photos when they're missing their teeth or they're playing their sports or they're opening their Christmas presents It's really important to capture and to celebrate and to commemorate those sacred moments, those seasonal transitions. And what happens without clear life markers and rites of passage that indicate the transition from one season to another, people don't know what season they're in. They get very confused. They can be hurt. They can get lost. Uh, I would argue that this is why in our day, um, young adults, I can say that now that I'm in my approaching mid-40s, almost 45. Young adults don't know when they're adults. Uh, This is particularly true for young men, and I've talked about this a lot in my ministry, but it used to be you would have a rite of passage. The men would gather around. They would take you through some sort of rite of passage, and they would declare you to be a man, and then you would spend time with the men learning how to be a man. But today, we don't know When someone becomes a man? Is it 16 when he can drive? Is it 18 when he graduates? Is it 22 or 23 or 24 whenever he knocks out college? Is it when he moves out of his parents' house, sometimes not till his mid 20s? Is it when he gets married, usually closer to 30? Is it when his kids show up, usually in his early to mid 30s? When do you become a man? And some never know. And so they continue to act like boys, even though they're men. They're continuing to do the same things that they did in previous seasons of their life, play video games, borrow money from their mom, stay home and watch TV and find naughty things on the internet. Paul says, when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. You need to know what season you're in to do that. There are things that you and I did when we were children that were not sinful, they were just childish. And it's not a sin for a child to do a childish thing, but it is a sin for an adult to do a childish thing. I saw a guy the other day, I kid you not, at the store uh, in the middle of the afternoon, um, he was actually uh, getting a haircut. Took my boys in to get a haircut. So I put them in the car and I drive him to the get a haircut. None of them has a license. Um, my oldest son started a little business and he's 15 and he's got his own money now. and. But like, let's say my nine-year-old son, he doesn't have a significant income stream or a mode of transportation. So we all get in the truck and go to get the boy's haircuts. And of course, it's my job to drive the nine-year-old there. And it's my job to pay for the nine-year-old's haircut. And if he wants some product for his hair so he could spike it up and look like a cool dude, then that's my great delight as a dad is to drop a few dimes and get him some stuff for his hair. There was another guy there in his 20s, mid to late 20s middle of the afternoon still wearing his pajama bottoms i cannot figure out a whole generation of guys walking around in their pajamas and uh his mom drove him there and she paid for his haircut and he asked to get some stuff for his hair and she said no he already had some at home and they sat there and had the equivalent of a nuclear meltdown at the haircut place because he started throwing a fit because he really wanted some hair stuff. And he was a grown man. And if he wanted some hair stuff, he should be able to get some hair stuff. And there, there was seemingly nothing wrong with this guy. I mean, he seemed able-bodied and competent and able to take care of himself. But his mom was still doing the same thing that she did when he was a nine-year-old little boy. And that's letting him go out of the house in his pajamas and putting him in the car and driving him to get a haircut and paying for it. And then arguing with him over whether or not he really needed hair care product. And the dude's pushing 30. It's not wrong to do childish things when you're a child. It wasn't a sin for Jesus when he was a 10-year-old boy to act like a 10-year-old boy, but it would have been a problem if Jesus acted like a 10-year-old boy when he was a 30-year-old man. It's so important to know what season you're in and to assume the responsibilities that come with that season that you are in. That's what he's driving at. It's this discernment, it's this spirit-led wisdom, it's this intuitive insight. Okay, things have changed and it's time for me to change. Things have changed, it's time for me to change what I'm doing because this season of life requires something different than the previous season of life. He continues in Ecclesiastes 3.9. What do people really get for all their hard work? There's a good question, right? You ever ask that one on Monday morning? At least those of you who are employed. Why am I getting out of bed? Why am I going to work? What what is the point? Verse 10, I've seen the burden God has placed on us all. Aren't you glad that the Bible says that you're carrying a burden? You're carrying a burden, friend. I'm carrying a burden. Life has fallen imperfect people and what he's already called a, a crooked world that cannot be straightened out causes a burden, Some of you right now, you're straining under that burden of responsibility and the season that you are in is a season of tremendous burden. Verse 11, yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. God has made. He has planted eternity in the human heart, but even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. What's the point? Well, the point is life can feel like drudgery, like duty, like demands. You do the laundry, you mow your grass, you clean your dishes, you pay your bills, you repair your car, you organize your house. It's all done, right? No. As soon as it's done, it starts to come undone. As soon as it's done, it starts to come undone. That's the point. That, that, that life never fully, completely, totally, ultimately, perfectly comes together. See, God has said eternity in our hearts. You know what eternity is? Eternity is Perfection. Eternity is the kingdom of God. See, we were made for a perfect world and then we sinned and we infected and affected all that God had made. And there still is this longing, this yearning, this straining, this hungering, this thirsting in the human soul for that which is eternal, that which endures forever. When something is done, it's done forever. When something is completed, it stands forever. When something is right, it's right forever. God has set eternity in our hearts, and that's why this life is such a burden. But God, it says, has laid this burden on us. It's not fate that has you in your circumstances, it's not karma that has you in your circumstances, it's God over and above it all, and he will make everything beautiful in its time. No, the day of the doctor saying it's cancer, the day that the divorce paperwork is served, the day that the child is miscarried, that's not a beautiful day. But God makes everything beautiful in its time. God makes everything beautiful in its time. And so you've never worked a day in vain. You've never shed a tear in vain. You've never read a verse in vain. You've never confessed a sin in vain. You've never forgiven an enemy in vain. You've never eaten a meal in vain. You've never laughed at a joke in vain. You've never served another human being in vain. You've never tied a dollar in vain. It's all going to be beautiful. It's just not time. And that's faith. And that's where faith comes in. And sometimes when it it looks so bad, it's good to look in God's word. There we see that God uses bad men on dark days like Herod who killed Jesus, like an ax in his hand for a purpose. That God uses betrayers like Judas Iscariot to fulfill prophecy and to bring about the redemption of his people we have a God who uses everything, everyone, every day, every minute, every opportunity, every word, every deed, every dollar. And somehow, mysteriously, majestically, magnificently, bends it all back toward his will. Bends it all back toward his beauty. And if we trust him, if we accept our burden, if we know what season we live in, and we do our best to be obedient to the responsibilities that we have in this season of life and the burden we bear, then one day he's gonna give us an opportunity to sit with him in eternity. And right now, Solomon is saying, we don't see what God is doing, but that day we will. Paul says it this way, now we see in part, now we know in part, and on that day we will know as we are fully known and we will see clearly. Right now, Paul says, looking at life, it's, it's like a cloudy, foggy, rainy day, and you're peering through a dirty window trying to make sense of what's out on the horizon. You see in part, we see in part. We wanna see more. God, where are you? What are you saying? What are you doing? Man, I felt that. I felt that recently. Perhaps you have as well. And he says, God makes everything beautiful in its time. In its time. And until that time is the time of trusting. It's the time of waiting. It's the time of worshiping. It's the time of enjoying. So here's what he says in Ecclesiastes 3, 12, and 13. So I concluded, well, what do you do? If this is life, the burdened life that God has given us as imperfect people in an imperfect world with a longing for perfection and eternality, where there are seasons and shifts and transitions and changes and burdens, He says, so I concluded, what do you do? There is nothing better than to be happy. (laughs) That's crazy, right? To be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. Some of you have been told, well, that's the doctrine of hedonism. And hedonism is where you only live for pleasure. And then other Bible teachers like John Piper or others will come along and talk about, well, there is a Christian version of hedonism, and that is that, yes, we are to be happy and to enjoy ourselves. And the problem is that we are too easily pleased that we settle for created things rather than the creator God. We settle for sin when we could have holiness. We settle for idolatry when we could have worship. We, we settle for, for things that do not satisfy it's like junk food for the soul, rather than a feast for the ages. And he says in people, verse 13, Ecclesiastes three, should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of their labor, for these are gifts from God. Wow. God wants you to be happy and enjoy yourself. Okay. For some of you, your mind just exploded because the whole paradigm you've lived under is that the world has happiness and joy and God has rules and regulations. And you really want to go do the things that the world offers you to do so that you can be happy and enjoy yourself. But if you do, you'll be breaking God's rules and then he will set you on fire forever. And so it's more fear that restrains you at least for a season or on occasion. the silly cartoons that they often show kids is that heaven is a pretty boring place, right? We're all chubby babies sitting on clouds, wearing diapers, plinking on harps with wings far too small to carry our chubby bodies anywhere interesting. It doesn't look very awesome. That's the picture of heaven, the false picture of heaven. And then the picture of hell is... um, heavy metal bands, open free bar tab, all you can eat chicken wings, people with tattoos, and uh, a really good time. Whoever's in charge of heaven has done some really bad marketing. Some really bad marketing. Heaven is not an ethereal place that our disembodied souls go to dwell. Um, That's an interim state. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Stick with me, I'm down a serious mental rabbit trail sitting at home alone today. We live our life in the body through which we're able to enjoy our food and our drink like he is articulating here in Ecclesiastes. One day we die, the body separates from the soul, the soul goes to be with the Lord. The body goes into the ground, Paul says. One day, and so, and so in that state, that immaterial state where our soul is in the presence of God, that's heaven. But heaven isn't the status that we find ourselves in forever. Ultimately, the body and the soul reunite. They rejoin. We have the resurrection of the dead. Daniel 12.2 says that those who sleep in the body, the sleep in the dust of the earth, the multitudes will arise. Just as Jesus rose, we will rise. This is the whole point of 1 Corinthians 15, that he's the first fruits, that that Jesus is the pattern for the future of Jesus' people, that our soul comes back into our body, and our body and soul are rejoined, and they're resurrected and reunited with God. And then God makes all things new, new heaven, new earth, new creation, and the curse is lifted, and the eternal kingdom of God comes. And so the Bible's picture of the eternity set in our hearts is this world without its sin or its sickness or its suffering, without its devastation, without its death, without its discouragement. It's the world that we all long for. It's the world that we all hope for. It's the world that the idealists still pine for. It's the world that the voters still vote for and never comes because of the burden that God has laid on us. That there is no kingdom unless there is a king and you can't have a perfect kingdom without a perfect king. And you can't have an eternal kingdom without an eternal king. And we got to wait for our king. He'll, he'll make everything beautiful in its time. He's coming back. And in the meantime, there is nothing better than to be happy and enjoy yourself. To eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of your labor for these are gifts from God. That's awesome. I don't know if you're like me. I tend to be a person who spends a lot of my time and energy either looking back with regret, "What have coulda, shoulda, done things different, or looking forward with plans. Gonna get there, gonna change it, going to do it, going to conquer it, going to make it, going to build it, going to grow it, going to... What happens then is we miss the present. We spend so much time mourning the past or planning for the future that we miss the present. Have you done that? Are you doing that? That's where he's saying stop. Be happy. You say, I'm not happy. Then find a way to be happy, to thank God for his gifts and his grace, for his presence and his plans and his people. And enjoy yourself. Say, I don't enjoy myself. Find something you enjoy to the glory of God. Eat and drink. Eat and drink. The big idea is to know what season you're in, to trust God's in it, find a way to be happy and try and enjoy it with the people we love. That's why he talks about a meal here. The whole point of a meal is friendship, it's memories. Life is like a good meal. A good meal is not to be eaten quickly. It's sad that so many people eat their meals alone, in their car, in traffic eating something that they ordered through a clown and was handed to them by a high school kid who dropped it in a fryer. The kingdom of God ain't like that, friends. The kingdom of God, we're told in Isaiah, has the finest of wines and the choicest cuts of meat. I tell you, when Jesus picks up the tab, it's gonna be a doozy, friends. having a nice cup of coffee, French roast, fresh brewed, good beans. I can't imagine what a cup of coffee is gonna taste like in heaven. What's a perfect cup of coffee tastes like in a perfected body? Wow, that's gonna be a good cup of coffee. Some of you are vegetarians, praise be to God. Imagine how great the vegetables the seasoning the preparations will be when king jesus sets the table in his kingdom it's going to be awesome you like dessert me too I, I had a kid yesterday offer me donuts pastor mark you want some donuts of course i do i want all the donuts not just all your donuts i want all the donuts on earth but I'm over 40 and so I cannot touch carbohydrates or I blow up like a puffer fish. It's sad. In heaven, however, glorified body. Dessert's gonna be awesome and you can eat as much as you want and I can't guarantee it, but I don't think I'll need to do like my grandpa did and just go to overalls and give up on anything with a waste. The kingdom of God's awesome. My kids have asked me, dad, do we get to swim? Sure. Ride bikes? Why not? Play ball? Of course. Climb trees? I will too. God has said eternity in our hearts. When we sit down to eat and drink, we're, we're we're doing so really walking out a biblical theme. You remember it was our first parents, Adam and Eve, when everything went south. It was because they ate a meal with Satan. Need a meal with someone? That's an act of friendship. That's an act of fellowship. God's people started partaking of the Passover as a sacred meal to prepare them for their redemption and to prepare them for the ultimate redemption that Jesus would bring. Jesus ate the Passover meal with his friends. We call it the Last Supper. As Christians, we participate in the communion meal to eat and drink with God and his people. And the Bible says in Revelation that one day there'll be the wedding supper of the Lamb. I think it's in Revelation 19. And that day when a wedding happened and a bride and a groom came together, there would be days of celebration and feasting and drinking and celebrating. You may recall that Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And people would come together and they would celebrate and enjoy one another. Because you know what? There's nothing you've bought that you'll take into the kingdom of God. But two things that will go with you are people and memories. You get to take those with you. And so those are exceedingly important. And this picture in Revelation 19 is at the end of the age when the kingdom of God comes and the king, our king, Jesus comes. That he'll be like a groom and his church will be like a bride and there'll be the wedding supper of the Lamb. And that we'll sit down with our brothers and sisters from all the nations and all the races and all the ages. We'll celebrate Jesus and we'll tell stories about his greatness and his glory and his goodness. And in one of the most spectacular, mind-bending, soul-shaking, hope, building verses in all the Bible. It says in Zephaniah, I think it's around chapter three, that in that day, just just think about this. If you're driving your car, don't close your eyes, but think about it in your mind's eye, that the Lord himself will rejoice over his people with song. I don't know what bands you like or what concerts you enjoy, But if the kingdom of God is a party where everybody's happy and everybody gets along and everybody's loving and forgiven and forgiving and reconciled and healed up and the little kids with walkers get to just throw them away to the glory of God and the cancer patients get to take the tubes out of their arms and run to give Jesus a hug and the aborted babies all get to play kickball And the table is set and it's time to feast. And everyone is laughing and talking and hugging and smiling and rejoicing. We sit down at the table And Jesus stands up and he sings over us. Friends, that's where we're going. When Jesus says, I've gone to prepare a place for you, that's what he means. Solomon's right, we don't see what God is doing, but through his word, we we get a glimpse. And it's enough of a glimpse to keep us trudging forward toward home and along the way to stop, to eat, to drink, to enjoy, to celebrate, to be happy, to make memories with people we love. Life is like a good meal. You got to sit down. You got to slow down. You got to savor every bite. One of my favorite things to do with my family is just sit down and have a meal together. My wife's an amazing cook, our oldest daughter is an unbelievable cook. My daughter had this idea some years ago to my oldest daughter, who just graduated, to build a special dining room uh, table because we love to eat together. And so she got this idea, and it's kind of a kitschy, cool, multicolored, distressed, metal, leg, big old table that we can get a lot of people around. And so some people were kind enough to build that for us. So we could sit there as a family and do Ecclesiastes 3. There is nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. People should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of their labor, for these are gifts from God. When we have family and friends over to eat, we hand them a Sharpie pen and have them sign under the table. This table now is a few years old and it's got quite a few signatures under it and our hope and our trust and our prayer is to keep it as a little family keepsake for a really long time. If you haven't figured it out, I'm kind of the sentimental type. I love this stuff. Making memories over meals. And our hope and our trust and our goal and our prayer is that we keep this table for a really long time and that someday... The kids can take their kids or their grandkids and climb under the table and, oh, this is when so-and-so came over and this is when so-and-so came over and this is when so-and-so came over. Got to know what season you're in. Got to prepare for it. You can't spend all your time mourning over the past season or preparing for the future season. You need to enjoy the present season. That's what he's saying. What Solomon is driving at, my friends, it gets articulated a little bit differently depending upon how you were taught. Let's do a little theology on this. Um, I believe that theology should be a home and not a prison, that Christians should fellowship with other Christians that agree with them on the closed-handed issues and disagree with them on the open-handed issues, and you can learn from each other, and one of the things you learn is it's good to love one another. And when I'm with my Reformed and Calvinistic friends, they'll talk about the sovereignty of God, It's a big deal to them, big deal to God's word. And they'll often refer to John Calvin. And John Calvin taught, and I'm summarizing, or at least those in the Calvinistic tradition taught, that God has, proverbially speaking, two hands. One is his active hand, the other is his passive hand. Through his active hand, he causes things to happen. Through his passive hand, he allows things to happen. The point is that whatever season or circumstances you're in, it ultimately comes from God's hand. One way or another, it comes from God's hand, either God's active hand or his passive hand. And you don't need to understand everything that is going on, but you need to accept the season that you're in. This is where Paul asks this rhetorical question in Romans. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Well, he's not expecting one of us in the back of the class to raise our hand and give him the answer. The answer is... No one knows the mind of the Lord except the Lord. And what we are to do, we're to trust the sovereignty of God, that he is in control, he is in charge, uh, he is good, he loves us, and we may not know what he's doing, and it may not feel pleasant at the time, but he is in control and has it under control. Conversely, when I'm with my charismatic and Pentecostal friends, who I really love, enjoy, appreciate, and especially in my more recent season of life, have been incredibly kind and prayerful and helpful. They'll talk a lot about the flow of God. And what they're talking about is um, needing to know and discern what God is doing in our life and then flowing with God by the power of the Holy Spirit, like a kite in a breeze. Um, If you've ever flown a kite, you know that uh, the kite doesn't control the wind. The wind controls the kite, and there's no way to fly the kite against the wind. The only way to fly a kite is for it to yield to the wind and to flow with it, and that when Jesus says to Nicodemus that the Holy Spirit is like the wind, I mean, it's, a, it's an analogy, but it's like that. You need to flow with it. You need to go with it. If this is what God is doing, if this is where God is taking you, if this is if this is the course that God has set out for you, you're the kite, not the breeze, and you need to flow with it. You need to flow with what God is teaching you and doing in you and through you and in your life. That's how my charismatic and Pentecostal friends would explain it. Um, However you would articulate it, it's knowing what season you're in and going with what God is doing. And then he closes with this, Ecclesiastes 3, uh, 14. And I know that whatever God does is final. What he's saying is you can't change what God is doing. Um, Think of it like a ship. If I could use an analogy that just comes to mind as I'm sitting here, of a ship that is heading toward a destination and you're one of the passengers on the ship. You can change a lot of things on the ship, but you can't change the port. It's headed toward. The captain has that under control. Well, God is the captain, and, and we can say and do a lot of things on the ship, but ultimately, uh, our captain, uh, he's going to get his ship to his port. Whatever God does is final. Nothing can be added, he says, to or taken from it. God's purpose is that people should fear him. We, we don't need to know everything God is doing. We certainly can't control God, but we should respect him and honor him. What is happening now has happened before and will happen in the future has happened before because God makes the same things happen over and over. What he's saying is it may be new to you, but it's not new. There are seasons and cycles and, and rhythms and routines. I mean, Americans still haven't learned your house isn't going to increase in value every year for the rest of your life. The market goes up, the market goes down. There are seasons, there are rhythms, there are cycles that are God-ordained and they are unbreakable, they are unchangeable. Um, Have you ever heard the phrase rolling with the punches? Um, If my research is right, it's an idiom taken from boxing. If you've ever boxed, I did a little bit in college just kind of for fun, or if you've ever been in a fight, been in a few of those when I was a kid in a rough neighborhood, uh, you know that getting hit hurts. That's the first thing you learn, that hurts. And so one of the things you need to learn pretty quickly is how to either avoid, if at all possible, uh, a blow, and if you can't avoid it, how to absorb it. The same is true in life. There are certain things you need to get out of the way of. There are other things you're never going to get out of the way of, and you've got to learn how to absorb it, how to endure it, how to um, suffer through it. And, and the worst thing you can do um, with a punch, let's say you're in a boxing match or in a good fight, is just sort of stiffen yourself up and take it head on. Well, then you're gonna absorb the full weight of the blow and you're gonna get hurt in a big, big, big way. And so, boxers will learn, and if you ever watch a good boxing match, like they hit each other hundreds of times. Well, so they've learned how to position their body to absorb the blows to reduce uh, some of the, the pain that they would suffer. Uh, I found the same thing in baseball. Uh, one of the things, I played baseball growing up, and my three boys are baseball players too, and one of the first things you learn is uh, it kind of stinks when you're batting and somebody throws a ball and it hits you. That thing hurts like crazy. And and the first instinct of a, of a kid who's learning the game is uh, they get scared and, and their, their nerves take over. So you just sort of straighten up and then just sort of clench your body in a stiff way as the ball comes well that's going to make it the most painful because you're offering a flat surface to your body and 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 you're not allowing any of that force to roll off you're just absorbing the whole pitch usually in your back or your hip somewhere very vulnerable and what happens then is uh You hear a loud thud, then there's this moment of silence and everybody takes a deep breath. The kid screams, the mom screams, the dad screams, and everybody runs on the field to make sure the kid's still alive while they're laying in the dirt, making mud with their tears. And a good coach very quickly will tell you, hey kid, when the ball is thrown at you, turn away from it, roll your back. Don't stick your face out there. Give them your backside. And if you roll your back when the ball comes, then it'll glance off you and it won't hurt as bad as a direct hit. Life is like that. Some seasons, there are few if any punches, there's no balls coming at your head. Other seasons, it's blow after blow, pitch after pitch, and you've got to learn how to roll with the punches you've got to turn and let the ball glance off your back. And what he's saying is, if you're in a season where the punches are coming, the pain is happening, the ball is flying, you have two choices. You can throw your hands up in frustration, trying to change the season you're in didn't want to be divorced. I don't want to have cancer. I don't like being unemployed. I don't like being single. Well, if that's the season you're in, you can throw your hands up in frustration trying to change the season, which is like trying to grow oranges in Alaska in February. Or you can throw your hands in the air and worship will surrender. Got to trust you. I'm gonna roll with the punches. I'm not gonna to pretend to understand everything you are doing or why it's all happening. But maybe like the reformed guys and gals, I'm just gonna trust you're over this and you got it. Like my charismatic and Pentecostal friends, I'm just gonna flow with it. I'm gonna relax. I'm not gonna clench up. I'm going to flow with God through this. Maybe uh, an analogy, a story, an illustration will help in closing. Uh, Being a dad of five kids, um, they like to go to water parks. We've taken them to various water parks. Um, Took them to the biggest water park in Europe years ago. Uh, Took them to water parks here in uh, Washington State. Took them to water parks in other states this last summer was the most recent time we went to a water park it was over in eastern washington on a hot day and it's interesting as you get to the top of the water slides how people respond uh, adults and kids some people just freak out they they stand there conflicted they know that you know to use solomon's analogy you know the season the time has come to go down the slide you know, 100 miles an hour with water splashing in your face, often through a dark tunnel, into a pool. And they'll just stand there. And the more they think about it, the more nervous, the more anxious, the more conflicted, the more freaked out they get. They, they overthink it. Some of you are like that. The season that God has you in, you're sort of up at the top of the tube, and, and you've, you've thought every cataclysmic way you could be harmed or die and you have got yourself into a full-blown panic. Others at the top, they, they, they have this plan, like I'm gonna get in, but I'm gonna control the pace. And so you see these people going down the water slide and they're gonna stick their legs out and they're gonna stick their arms out. And their thought is, I'm gonna be in charge. I'm gonna be in control. I'm gonna slow down the pace and I'll make this ride down this tube into whatever I want it to be. And you can chuckle at those people because that just doesn't work. There's too much force, man. You're going. seen others try and stop halfway down they are exerting all of their energy like i want it to stop and i want to climb back up the tube and i want this to be over that's in vain it never works you can't stop halfway down the tube and you're sure as heck not going to be able to climb your way back up the tube the only way is forward seasons of life are like that and there are a few people at the top of the tube the top of the water slide It's like they've read Ecclesiastes 3. It is what it is. There's nothing I can do. I'll probably be fine on the other end, maybe bruised and beat up and choking on some water, but I'm gonna go with it. I'm gonna enjoy it. I'm gonna make the most of it. I'm gonna find a way to get happy in it. What do they do? They throw their hands in the air in surrender, not in futility they jump in the tube, and they flow with it. And that's the point that Ecclesiastes 3 is trying to make. Whatever season you're in, whatever slide you're on, be happy, enjoy it, make the most of it, you're going to be okay.